the prayer this morning. Restore us and make us whole. Restore us through the preaching of your word. Let us hear whatever it is your Holy Spirit wants us to this morning. Open, open us up to receive and let us be responsive. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a senior uh, at Bethel College, we had a speaker come in named Jeff Kling. And he was 46 years old, and nearly his entire life he had been running away from God. Up until about 16 months prior to when he came to speak to us. You see, 16 months prior to his speaking uh, to us, he had been diagnosed with stage 4 malignant melanoma. He had cancer. It was a complete shock. He had no idea it was coming. And yet they had to get him treated right away. It was so severe. And so in a, a week or two, he finds himself in the hospital. And he's waiting in the waiting room. And he sees this woman next to him that he's never met. And he sees this woman is staring at him. And it becomes long enough that she's staring that it's getting kind of awkward. So he turns and he says to the woman, excuse me, do I know you? And she says, no, you don't know me. And this is kind of weird, and I've never done this before. I'm a really shy person. But I feel that God is asking me to pray a prayer of healing over you. Could I pray for you? And Jeff is not very religious, so he's you know, kind of freaked out. But he said, you know what? I, I just got diagnosed with cancer. I could use a prayer. Would you pray for me? So the woman prays for him. Nothing happens in that moment. Uh, but a couple weeks later, Jeff finds himself in, uh, going to surgery. And he gets out of surgery, and he has some reactions. So he has to... He has to stay in the hospital that night uh, to be overseen. And he's wondering to himself, well, why am I here? What, what, what brought me here? And he hears a voice come to him immediately and says, Jeff, I brought you here so that I could get your attention. <laughs> and he's thinking, there, are there drugs in my IV? What, what is going on? I know there's not any drugs in there. There's, what's going on? And he hears this voice talk to him. And, he's, and he knows this God. He says, and, and, and then God says to him, I brought you here because I want you to tell this story of how I healed you. And his mind immediately went to this woman praying for him in, in this waiting room. And he's thinking, okay, great, God's going to heal me. That, that's amazing. But he, he's like, what? I don't, I don't deserve this. And then he says, he says back to God, he says, God, I've, I've been running away from you my whole life. And I've known people who've prayed for healing and haven't gotten it. Why would you heal me? I've turned my back on you time and time again. And then God said to him, well, I've never turned my back on you. And I'm going to send you out to tell this story to as many people as you can. And so Jeff, he wakes up the next morning and again checks with a nurse. No, no drugs were in your system. It was just fluids. And he goes back to the doctors a few weeks later and, uh, to, get, to run some results. And they, and they say, Jeff, we can't believe it. There's no cancer in your body. We need, to, we need to run more tests. So they run all these kind of tests. They run MRIs. They run CTs. They run everything. There is not a cancer cell in his body. And they say to Jeff, we don't know how this happened. We can't even do anything. We can't even treat you because there's nothing there to treat. So Jeff was ecstatic, gave his life to God, and he, he came to Bethel College and tells this story. And what happened was it sparked a move of God across our campus. Chapel that day lasted seven and a half hours as people repented of sin, came to the Lord, and uh, people were praying into all hours of the night. And they return to God. See, God often uses the darkest moments of our lives to wake us up and to bring revival. He often uses the very worst things that happen to us to wake us up out of our slumber and to bring revival to others. You see, for Jeff, his cancer and his hospital stay, it woke him up to the reality of God and his love for him. And then he shared what God had done for him, 
for him and invited others to repent and to give their lives entirely to God. And what he did sparked a revival amongst us. And I believe that this is what the prophet Joel was doing for the people of Israel. We're in a series called Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. We're looking at each minor prophet. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel? Turn to Joel chapter 1. And a little context, if you didn't read the book over the week, things were going horribly bad in Israel at this time. A huge locust plague had come in and destroyed literally everything. Everything is gone. Look at verses 9 and 11 in chapter 1, how Joel describes what's going on. He says, The grain offerings and the drink offerings, they're cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Verse 11, the harvest of the field is destroyed. Everything is gone. Moreover, Joel, Joel goes on to say that the streams of water have dried up, there's a drought going on, and that fire has destroyed pastures and trees. Think about the fires in California. Everything, their livelihood is gone. Their survival is at stake. And in fact, their relationship with God is in danger as well because they don't even have the grain offerings and drink offerings because they don't have anything to offer. So the sacrifices are being stopped at the temple. And then Joel sums up this whole scene in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can endure these times? Who can endure such a judgment? You see, everything was in utter ruin. Now, locust, locust plagues, we don't really experience them where we live, but they, they still happen today. Uh, people have witnessed them, and they are absolutely terrifying. They destroy everything in their path. Their food, what, what they depended on to survive, their livelihood, their work, gone. I mean, this is, a, this is a national crisis on par with the Great Depression. This would be like all the stock markets crashing, you losing everything in your retirement account, you losing everything in your banking, bank, banking account, and you lost your job. That's what's going on in, in Israel right now. And you know, people nowadays, they may have different explanations for what happened to Israel. You know, they, what, you know what caused this locust plague? You know, people, people might say, well, you know, it's just, it's just one of those freak acts of nature that happens and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Or maybe we, we might say, you know, global warming brought these locusts into, into the community and we've got to really watch that. Or, or they might say there was a high pressure system and the weather caused it. Or, or it's somebody else's fault. There's too much pollution and that's why these, these locusts are descending upon us. But the prophet Joel, he knows exactly why the locust plague came. See, he was a prophet and so God peeled back the curtain. What's going on behind the scenes? And come to find out it's God who has brought this locust plague. It's from the hand of God in order to wake the people up. You see, as we study the prophets, here's what you got to know. God's judgments and his warnings about judgment, they are almost always an effort to get the people to wake up. It's almost always an effort to get the people to revive, to repent, to come back to life. It's to motivate them to repentance. It's not just to judge them to judge them. It's to bring a fire that purifies. It's to bring, in other words, a revival. Now, what is, what is a revival? You know, we've heard that word in different contexts. Really, I mean, simply, it just means to bring something that, that was dead back to life, to revive something, to resuscitate it, to give it new life. And when I'm talking about revival, I'm talking about a move of God, a move of the Holy Spirit that revitalizes 
a body of Christ, a congregation. In revival, people return to their first love of God. In revival, people repent of sin that's held them back for so long. They, they love the word of God more. They see truth from falsehood more easily. They grow in their love for God. They grow in their love for their neighbor. People get saved, conversions and baptisms and evangelism and discipleship and holiness and all the like. All those things increase when God sends revival. You see, God wants all his people to experience this, to experience a revitalized life. So he sends the prophet Joel. And he says, I'm trying, just like with, him, with Jeff in the hospital room, I'm trying to wake you up. I'm trying to get your attention. And now that I have it, let me tell you how to bring revival to the people of God. So I've titled this message, How to Have a Revival. And I was joking with Sally out in the foyer, says, well, step one, have a locust plague. Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about today. But really every church Every community of God needs this. It's something that we should pray for, something that we should seek. And then in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, God tells the people exactly what he wants them to do, exactly how they're to go about seeking this revitalization of their life in God. So step one for how to have revival is we need to recognize the urgency of the hour. You've got to recognize the urgency of the hour. Verse 12, look in your Bibles, uh, Joel says, or God says, actually, even now, return to me. Even right now, in this very moment. See, right now is the time for revival, not later. Repentance is for right now, and call the people together, even the people who just got married. The time is urgent. Everyone's got to be involved in this. And I think for the Israelites, this probably would have been easy for them to realize. You know, there's something about disaster, disasters and tragedies that have a way of, of softening our hearts to the move of the Holy Spirit. I mean, remember how many people wanted to go to church after 9-11. There's something about disasters that, that move us to seek God. But what about those of us who live in relative comfort and, and relative ease? Will we ever recognize the urgency of the hour? My friends, I believe of, because of where we live, it will always be a constant struggle for us to experience revival. That's just, that's just the reality. When you live in relative comfort and ease, it is always hard to recognize the urgency of the hour. Look at what Jesus says to the church in Revelation, Church of Laodicea. It's on your screen. This is Jesus talking. He says to the church, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful, poor and blind and naked. In other words, our prosperity shields us from seeing our urgent need of God. It shields us from needing our, our urgent need of the Holy Spirit. This is why the, for the poor it's easier to enter the kingdom, for the rich it's harder. Because we don't realize our urgent need. And we don't seek God as diligently as we should, therefore we become lukewarm. That's what happens. But it, it's, my friends, it's more than just our material prosperity that keeps us from revival and for passionate living for Jesus Christ. It's also our perception of our current and past success. I've been listening to a leadership podcast by a guy named Craig Rochelle. He's a covenant pastor. And he, and he said in this podcast, he says, the, what, is, what is the greatest threat to your future success? What is the greatest threat to your future success of the church? 
And he says, the greatest threat to your future success is your current success. It's your current success. And I would add also your past success. See, what happens is you do some things well, some things are going well. Maybe pride creeps in a little bit and you begin to grow complacent. Therefore, your current success is the biggest threat to your future success. Jim Collins, a leadership expert, he says that good is the enemy of great. We get satisfied with good, and so we don't pursue great. That's what happens in our spiritual life as well. And I think even people in kind of my world of, of church leadership, they recognize this. And people who say, if you want to reach people with the gospel, you should probably just plant a church. Because church plants, they're known to reach people because they haven't had any success yet. They haven't done anything yet. And so people are passionate and people will make all kinds of sacrifices of their time, of their finances, because they know they got to get this thing off the ground. We got to reach people. We got a mission. And so people focus on church planning in the leadership world because they know that as churches get older, problems begin to creep in. And this is what happens. This isn't anything out of normal. This happens to all kinds of established churches, especially churches of about our age, about our size. Because what happens is we've seen God, you know, do some things. We've seen God do some amazing things. We've run some good programs or we have them established. And we've celebrated many years of, of ministry. And our worship service, we got it fine-tuned and it gets comfortable. So churches like us, we allow complacency, complacency to slip in. Our current success or our past success keeps us from seeing the urgency of the hour. We start accepting good and stop pursuing the greatness for which God has called us. So we get okay with comfortable Christianity and comfortable church. And we stop pursuing the all-out, the on-fire for Jesus and his mission in the church of God in the world. And it may not feel like it because there's no locust plague or national disaster we're experiencing currently right now. Maybe there are some that we could think about. But nevertheless, the hour is incredibly urgent. And I hope we don't make God send, send us a crisis to get us ourselves into gear, right? Let's not do that. We have to recognize that the hour is now. The time is now for revival. And the time is now because God has given us a calling. He's given the church of Jesus Christ a mission. And you're either on your way to accomplishing it or you're not. You're to make disciples, Jesus said. That's to grow stronger disciples, the ones that you have, and it's to make new ones. It's to spread the gospel. And you're either doing it or you're not. And who is going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in the world but his people? Who will share, who will win souls to the Lord but the people of Jesus Christ? Not only do we have this divine calling, we have an enemy. Our enemy is prowling around, and he would love it if Faith Covenant Church just stayed comfortable, if we just stayed satisfied with our past and current success. He would love just to keep us right where we are because you don't perceive the urgency of the hour. And not only do we have this enemy, we also have limited time. We have limited time. When I read through the church history, every season is important. Every decision is important. Everything we do has a massive effect on the future of the church. The time is now for revival. Even now, Joel says, let us return to God with all our hearts. In the even now, it talks about the urgency, but it also means that it's never too late. It's never too late for revival in our church and in your life. You might, you might be saying to yourself, you know what? I've been lukewarm on God the last five years. I haven't really prayed like, like I thought I would or like I should for the last two or three. Well, that's okay. Even now, God says to you, return to me. It doesn't matter where you've been. Even now, 
right now. Return to me. It's not too late. So to experience revival in the church, we have to recognize the urgency of the hour. Number two, we have to return to God wholeheartedly. We have to return to God wholeheartedly. You know, God tells the people what he wants them to do. Return to me with all your heart. Look how personal, we're in verse 12 still. Look how personal our God is. Don't just return to religious ritual. Return to me. I want a relationship with you. And he says, do this with all your heart. Not the outward appearances, not the rituals, not just the, the things we do, but I want your heart, your affections, your emotions to be involved. I want your whole heart, mind, and soul to be involved in coming back to me. And then verse 12, continuing, it says, fasting and weeping and mourning. Now these are the outward forms of repentance. This would be the visible things that you would see when people repent. John Calvin, on this passage, he commented that moderate repentance will not do. Just, just, just a little bit of repentance. Just, I'll, just, I'll just clean up a little bit. Ah, that's, that's not going to do. Returning to God is all the way. Last week, we discussed uh, the prophet Hosea, where God gives us this great metaphor of marriage and his relationship with his people. And uh, after this uh, after uh, Hosea's wife Gomer cheats on him, he goes and redeems her and gets her back. And he says that they're gonna be, you're, we're going to be faithful. We're going to work on this relationship. And you're not going to be with any other man. And they, their marriage is getting restored. But I mean, can you imagine if, if, if Gomer had said, kind of, you know, would it be all right if I, just, if I just saw other men occasionally? Or just a little bit less than I was before? Could I just go out, you know, maybe once a month? I mean, that, would that be all right with you, Hosea? No! No, because the relationship requires total commitment. That's why our marriage liturgy says we forsake all others, all other loves, all other idols, we, and commit to God alone. And because of God's great love for us, we can trust that when we do that, it says the text says he is gracious and compassionate, full of love. And so we have to let God do this in our lives. We tear our hearts, not our garments, verse 13. And, we, and we, we tear our heart and we say, God, I'm open. I'm open to, be cha to change. I'm open to be molded by your spirit. I'm open to let you come in and change my life. Tear your heart. That's step number two. We gotta rec step one, we've got to recognize the urgency of the hour. Step number two, we've got to return to God wholeheartedly. And lastly, step three, we have to rally the whole church to pray. We have to rally the whole church to pray. Verse 14 in the text. Joel says, Who knows? Who knows? God may relent from the judgment. He says, you know, God is actually responsive to his people. All this judgment, this locust plague that you're seeing, actually, if you turn around, if you, if you repent, if you pray, God might actually relent and stop the disaster from coming. Who knows? So because God is responsive to his people, because he is merciful, we ought to pray fervently. We ought to pray for revival fervently, expecting and believing that God will respond. So that's why Joel continues in verse 15, blow the trumpet, declare a fast, call a sacred assembly, get everybody together. We need everybody involved in this. Now remember, again, granted, this is a special situation in Joel. Not a disaster is happening. But I think the spiritual truth remains. No matter what's going on, it takes everybody in the community to be part of a revival. It takes everybody. He calls out everybody. I mean, verse 16, he, calls, he says the elders... That's not just the leaders, that's the word for the Hebrew word for the aged, the senior adults in the church. Then he says the children and the infants who are still nursing, even the bride and bridegroom who just got married, come on in. It takes everybody. And it's true for our church as well. 
You know, we need, we need everybody praying and seeking revival for this church. You know, for the, for the senior adults, we need you praying. We need you seeking revival. Don't let your energy that you don't have as much anymore, don't let your stage in life keep you from engaging because the prophet Joel points out, we need you engaged. We need you praying. We need you seeking for revival. And, I, and additionally, we need to say to the young parents with kids, don't let the demands of raising kids keep you from the mission of God. Don't let it keep you from revival in the church. We need you praying. We need you seeking revival. And we, your kids are a part of it too. Even the babies are a part of it. They're a part of this church. They're a part of this communi community. We want them to see a revival, a revitalized church, don't we not? Everybody in the whole church must be rallied to the cause of prayer for revival to happen. The great revivalist and evangelist D.L. Moody, he said every great work of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. The revivals you've heard about, the great things you've read in Scripture, the, the revivals you've heard about in church history, every great move of God can be traced to a group of people praying. Prayer always precedes revival. And I want you to notice that revival prayer, it's motivated by mission, the mission of God. Look at verse 17. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? You see, if Israel goes down, the other nations are going to wonder, well, where was their God? Didn't God have anything to do, to do with this? Didn't he save them? You see, Israel's life and vitality has a direct reflection on God. And the same is true of the church. Our vitality as a church has a direct reflection on God in our community in the spheres of influence God has given us. So we don't want people asking, well, is their God real? We want them asking, wow, their God is changing lives. He's doing amazing things. And I want to go hear about it. I want to hear about it. I want to learn about that God. I mean, what if, what if testimonies of physical and emotional healing started coming out of our church? What if conversions and renewal started flowing out of Faith Covenant? What if God started saving a bunch of people? We started seeing salvations happen all the time. People on fire for God, people on fire for worship and prayer and His Word, people wanting to spread the name of Jesus everywhere they can. Maybe Blackwell Forest Preserve is getting annoyed with us because they, they can't keep up with how many baptisms we're doing over there. I mean, could you imagine what God could do if revival happened in our church. Marriage is restored. Emotional problems, physical problems healed and restored. Relationships that were divided, renewed. If we allow the Holy Spirit to come, breathe new life. And then we know that God is responsive to us. Look at verse 18. After the people do all this, the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. And when you read the rest of the text, God responds. He brings back all of their crops. He brings back everything that was lost. He revives the land. And then afterwards, you get the promise of the Holy Spirit, the great promise of Pentecost that comes out of Joel chapter 2. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all your sons and daughters, old and young, men and women. They will prophesy. God's going to pour out his spirit. And I believe God will do amazing things if we would just recognize the urgency of the hour. If we would only but return to him wholeheartedly, not half. If we would only rally our whole church to pray about this, I believe, God, if, if you humble yourselves and pray, then I will respond and heal your land. God is looking for a people who will have the humility to repent, who have the humility to say, you know what, yeah, we do need revival. We're not going to be complacent. We're not going to just be okay with good. We want great. 
We want to see great things happen because God's Spirit is pouring it out. So what I want to do this morning is I'm very much a big believer in not just listening to the Word, as James 1 says, but doing what it says. You know, we can't just hear good sermons and never respond. And so I just want to give us an opportunity to pray, to pray for revival, to pray for God's Spirit to be poured out uh, in this community. Um, John, would you, would you come and just, would you strum a little bit for us just to give us some, some music? And uh, what I want to do, we got, we got some time, we got plenty of time. And uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray. And so this pulpit is going to be open for anybody who desires to come up and pray on behalf of the church. I'm calling, I'm calling the, the older adults, I'm calling the younger adults, I'm calling even our, our teens and children. If you want to come pray, I'm rallying you to pray right now. <laughs> That's what I'm asking for. And I'm going to start us out, and then when I feel that uh, we're done, I will close us in prayer, and we'll go from there. All right, let me, let me pray. God, we, we humbly come before you. God, it is my deep desire to see revival in this community, to see hearts on fire for you, to see people be saved, to see a community revived and refreshed. God, bring revival. Bring, breathe your Holy Spirit into the life of this church. God, I think about the common sense of our kids. We're not satisfied with just a half-filled balloon. We want more. We want more than we're currently experiencing. We need your life. We need your spirit to breathe upon us. We ask you to fill this place and fill our lives. Let us return to you wholeheartedly to see a great move of God in our lifetime amongst our kids so that the next generation can hear about it and to see your good deeds. It's in Jesus' name.